Here's a social media anecdote that stuck in my mind. I'd clicked on the profile of some minor celebrity small enough that they would be managing their own social media and I saw this strange interaction. Another user was just sending them reams of abuse, really the most execrable stuff. And then when they finally responded, they turned on a pin and showered the celebrity with love. Oh, I was only joking, I love you, etc, etc. And then when you clicked through onto their profile, you'd see in their little biography, noticed by celebrity X um, on a given date. And I just thought, what on earth was going on? You're listening to Navara FM on Resonance, 104.4 FM London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Social media examples are always hyperbolic, of course, and pity the thinker who bases all their thinking on whatever pathology has been thrown up by Twitter. And yet, one reason this example has stayed with me is that the desire to be seen, the desire to be recognised, the desire to be visible does seem so much a part of our contemporary culture and thus our politics. But seen and recognised by what? And how? And if that's been a feature of our culture for a while, what has the advent of the platform, the rise of surveillance capitalism and the slow degradation of the public sphere done to it? Political theory nerds might recognise some of this as the theme of the so-called recognition debates at the end of the last century. And that's a theme that's been picked up recently by Will Davies, professor in political economy at Goldsmiths and long-term friend of this show. Uh, he's written about it in a recent piece in the New Left Review, uh, which picks up on that question of recognition and its transformation into the economy of reputation uh, in our digital age. And unlocking this complex of motivations and psychopolitical needs might just point us to new answers on the question of so-called cancel culture and why apparently prosperous people claim to be left behind and even who can manipulate the need for recognition to powerful and reactionary effect. But first, I asked Will just to explain a little bit about where these ideas come from, about that first emergence of the concept of recognition in politics. I mean, the article itself starts by uh, discussing a series of debates that went on within critical theory in the 1990s, uh, led by people like Charles Taylor, um, uh, Axel Honneth um, and Nancy Fraser, who then ended up in a, a, a kind of critical exchange with Honneth um, in the uh, early 2000s. Um, and I guess that for some of those thinkers, the idea of recognition, which is um, where my piece starts, is a concept that they take uh, particularly from Hegel, um, but is seen as being something that becomes um, a, a, a political, and I think for Honneth, a psychological problem of liberal modernity uh, from the 18th century onwards, from the time of the Enlightenment onwards. Um, and what I think they take from Hegel is the argument that um, the society as imagined by liberal philosophers and liberal economists in which we are all sort of atomized individuals, uh, bearers of rights, uh, engaging in free self-interested exchange in markets and this sort of thing. And, 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 and of course, these arguments are still alive today uh, amongst liberals, is that that is fine up to a point, but it is not sufficient for full uh, personhood, that there is an aspect of human beings which requires them to be uh, recognised by other people, that it's not enough to simply uh, sort of, you know, have uh, um, welfare enhancing exchanges in markets to uh, be uh, recognised within the legal system as a, as a human being, which of course we know that the liberal societies have not even necessarily been consistent in uh, upholding that uh, form of recognition. But there is also the need Need to be recognised for who one is, for, for one's identity, for one's culture, for one's uh, cultural and political contribution to society. And that that form of recognition is not something that can ever be simply kind of contained within a constitution, within a document, or within a set of rules for the market, but is something that um, involves 
um, dialogue um, and um, relationships fundamentally. Um, and that for figures such as Taylor and Honnett, it's something that can go on within civil society and goes on within communities. And one of the reasons why Taylor in particular was interested in reviving these Hegelian arguments about recognition, the need for other people to tell us who we are and to affirm who we are, is partly the influence that John Rawls had had in the, uh, over American political philosophy from the 1970s onwards, who was uh, obviously a, a, sort of one of the most important liberal uh, philosophers of the 20th century. Um, and what Taylor and others around him were doing was partly trying to push back against rules by saying that uh, purely focusing upon rights, purely focusing upon procedures and uh, constitutional structures is not adequate when there are all these other aspects of human beings that need to also um, uh, become part of our politics. Right. Well, one of the things I think that that's so interesting about your piece in particular is, 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 you know, it's a way to approach sort of political psychology um, and the influence of kind of individual psychology or psychological need on the way that um, politics is conducted, uh, you know, without going through the <laughs> sort of um, kind of standard critical theoretical, uh, you know, attempts to wedge Freudianism or, or whatever into into sort of Marxism, um, which, uh, you know, people people have various opinions on. Um, sometimes I find convincing, sometimes I don't. <laughs> um, but but so the, this kind of fundamental um, concept of recognition, it seems obviously... Um, intuitively true, and I think anyone you know reading about this uh, can can recognise in themselves a sort of you know a drive for a need for recognition. Um, I, but at the same time, you know, it, it seems to me almost to to engender like a second question, which is like, what exactly is it that people seek to have recognised? Because you know, it had me thinking about that that kind of the classic line. Um, you know, just prior to the French Revolution, I think it's um, C.S. who says, what is the fourth estate? It, you know, it is nothing. What will the fourth estate be? It will be everything. You know, that desire um, um, to have. So, so it seems to me like it, it almost connects to the question of, you know, not almost, it, it seems that it does connect to the question of representation and representative institutions. And yet, as you say, it doesn't seem to be just about political rights as they're narrowly construed, um, right? So it's not just about having the ability to um, have some form of political decision over who represents you in a legislature or something like that. So, so what, what is it? What is that process? Or what is that desire? So, I mean, I think for, for Charles Taylor, who um, is a, a, an important figure in, in all of this, and um, Taylor um, is, as I say, a, a communitarian philosopher. Uh, his, his kind of magnum opus was, was really Sources of the Self uh, from 1989. And for Taylor... Um, something happens with uh, with liberal modernity um, from roughly from the 18th century onwards, um, which I think Taylor is in some ways ambivalent about, which is the problem of authenticity, which is the problem that is becomes, I suppose, most acute in Romanticism and in the political uh, theory of, of, of figures such as Rousseau, uh, which is that the source of, of virtue and of uh, moral um, rectitude is no longer something that is guaranteed by, uh, you know, simply obeying the rules or sticking to traditional forms of status honour, as would have been the case in kind of pre-modern aristocratic societies, where you simply had to kind of repeat the past. Effectively, you know, if you were a baron, you did what barons did, and you received the recognition that barons received, kind of thing. Uh, or equally, in a more sort of Aristotelian idea of what ethics is, it is something that can be learnt and then is practised and becomes a kind of uh, a sort of set of uh, of practices and, and, and sort of arts almost that are conducted in public. Whereas the, under modernity, um, the problem of authenticity is uh, a problem of uh, who am I uh, in, in, in the depths of my being uh, and how might somebody else uh, come to come to see that. Now, for, for Honet, he's quite interested in the family, actually, because in some ways, and this is sort of does come back to psychoanalysis in some ways, is the, the, the first source of recognition that is, that is uh, most important to constructing us as human beings is the love we receive uh, within the family. Uh, and that, and of course, there's that, you know, psychoanalysis in some ways is premised on, upon all of the sort of ways in which that goes wrong. Um, within um, civil society, and it's civil society rather than within representative democracy. And in that sense, it's civil society as a space of, 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 of direct democracy, if you like, or of social movements, in which people um, uh, come together uh, out of a shared sense of some type of uh, demand, some type of injustice, 
Um, but in particular, some, uh, uh, and this is where someone like Nancy Fraser, interested in the, in the rise of, of what are often called, often called the social movement or the new left from the 1960s onwards, of movements within civil society in which some form of, of, of moral harm, some form of misrecognition uh, on the basis of, uh, of, of gender, of race, of sexuality, of other um, uh, forms of, of, of identity and, and other questions of who one considers oneself to be, that civil society becomes a space in which claims of identity start to become mobilized, um, not just for the, on, in order that they become recognized by, by, by other uh, people who share that identity, but they become uh, mobilized on the basis of, of, of making demands of, of, of the majority or of the state or of the market, um, which are perceived not to have been met in some ways. And that is really what, you know, the, the civil rights and, uh, which of course civil rights are, which civil rights movement was also a, or primarily a movement for the, um, for, for, for legal uh, recognition, but it's not just legal recognition. It's also the recognition of, uh, that harms have been done. Uh, it's the recognition um, that uh, someone's humanity has been diminished. And it is ultimately the demand that someone's full humanity now become uh, appreciated. Uh, at the same time, it's not simply being collapsed into the identities of majority identities. It's not simply about, you know, full, full recognition would be, you know, that the people of colour become treated as the same um, as uh, white people, because that's not necessarily, you know, what, what recognition means. That then is a sort of collapse back into a sort of liberal universalism. So this is the kind of great precarity and the great difficulty of the whole thing of what does equality mean uh, at the same time as recognition of difference? And this is really the sort of uh, the one of the fundamental dilemmas of political modernity for people like, well, for, for all of the things that I'm talking about. One of the arguments you make is that these, uh, you know, this argument, these arguments arise at a particular moment in the 20th century. So this kind of turn in critical theory arises exactly at the moment where um, the two contending global forces, you know, free market capitalism, um, socialism of various kinds, are both kind of collapsing or um, seem not to deliver on their promises in the way that perhaps some of their adherents might have expected. Um, and so out of that, we have these kind of, you know, this, the, you know there emerges this kind of discourse around uh, you know, around recognition, around identity, around this tussle of claims about um, uh, recognition and misrecognition. And so, I guess my question, you know, is is how far is this now kind of just the the foundation of the way in which politics is done? Mm. Uh, I guess, particularly in in the developed world. Yeah, I mean, I think Charles Taylor writes a a, a very influential article um, in uh, when is it? Sort of uh, nineteen ninety two, the politics of recognition, same year as Hat Honnett's book on the struggle for recognition. Uh, Nancy Fraser's article in the New Left Review, um, Recognition Revisited, is 2000. And then a few years after that, she and Honnett have this kind of argument in a, in a book, which was published by Verso, I think, in 2003. And, uh, you know, I find a lot of this, this, this debate uh, very interesting. And as you say, it's partly that um, uh, one of the things I, I mentioned in the piece is that and it's difficult. This language has now been so sort of polluted by by the right wing press that since you start talking about identity politics and uh, and, and questions of grievance immediately, that sort of sets alarm bells ringing that, that that this is being sort of this language is being used in a pejorative fashion. And I think we have to just sort of try not to let that kind of get inside our heads too much. Otherwise, you end up sort of you know being dragged onto the turf that Douglas Murray wants you to wants you to fight on. Um, uh, but uh, but it is the case of you know I mean Francis Fukuyama who is a more serious thinker than, than Douglas Murray I mean he's also written a, a one of his the book he wrote really in response to to, to the rise of Trump um, was uh, kind of arguing that there is a kind of almost a sort of a, a surplus of recognition demands uh, you know that liberalism has has lost its way because it's become overly uh, sensitive to recognition demands and you know of course recognition demands and identity politics is very powerful. On the right, as, as as well as what we think of as on the left, because after all, um, ultimately, what is what is Trumpism um, other than a form of um, you know white identity politics? It's not exclusively that, but that is uh, a big part of, of of what it's about. Is the is the mobilisation of discourses once associated with. Um, uh, minority identities uh, and denigrated identities, and it is picking those discourses up and using them on behalf of uh, majority identities and, and traditionally dominant ones. And that that is, you know, that gets you a long way to understanding what has sort of happened uh, in, in in the case of the re return of, of nationalism or the the, the 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 reconfiguration of nationalism in, in recent years. Um, I suppose the 1990s is a time that 
often was seen as you know terms like postmodernism get used i mean i suppose there was a there was, or there was at least a questioning of what are the grounds of critique from what what stance does the critic begin what from what stance does the radical critical theorist start from and of course if you're you know, Perry Anderson or, or someone like that. You don't worry too much about these things because <laughs> you carry on doing your, um, your your history and you 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 um, carry on searching for the forces that are really driving everything. And 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 that that type of Marxism um, will persist through thick and thin, really. Uh, but I think that what happened among some critical theorists is an attempt to try to uh, include the claims of. Um, those who were suffering, those who were the, the, the claims of injustice and the demands for recognition that act, the actors themselves, the, the political movements, that particular uh, individuals and, and identity groups and so on, that those demands and those uh, appeals to justice, um, the, the, hearing them, recognising them and potentially meeting them must be a part of what a just society consists of. Uh, and even when those, those demands do not seem to have anything to do with capitalism or the economy, that recognising them and recognising they have some kind of authority of their own is something that any critical theory and any emancipatory project needs to do. Now, that is kind of quite troubling from the perspective of Marxism, partly because, you know, a lot of those demands get expressed via the language of the market. It might be, you know, saying, if only we could fix the gender pay gap, then we'd have sort of overcome some particular form of patriarchal injustice. Now, I'm not saying anyone is, is saying just that, but there is that kind of what sometimes called neoliberal feminism, which effectively channels demands for justice via the market um, primarily, and, and, and I suppose in some cases almost exclusively. Uh, nevertheless, that is, I think, what some of these these thinkers were were doing in in, in the nineties. I've always been quite sympathetic to to aspects of that. I mean, it's also quite influential over the the school of social theory and sociology that has influenced quite a lot of my work, which is the the, the convention school of Luke Boltanski and, and others, uh, for whom, you know, um, there is a kind of, a, I suppose, a sort of theoretical humility of trying to recognise that academics and scholars and, and critical theorists aren't the only people with a, with, a, with, a, with a sort of perspective in the world, aren't the only people who sometimes think that there is injustice around, you know, that the, 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 the experience of injustice is actually a component part of how injustice works. And I think that's one of the central claims that, that people like Honnett and, and Taylor and others would do. And, and in a way, it is that, that sort of search for a new premise, a new grounding upon which uh, critical theory can be can re rebuilt. I mean, Fraser's argument back against Honnett was, if you don't recognise that, that, that capitalism and the market mm -hmm. has actually a sort of an exceptional capacity to exploit and to dominate, then there is the risk of lapsing into what she calls a kind of vulgar culturalism, which is where effectively, as soon as someone stands up and says, uh, you know, I am suffering, I am misrecognised, then you have to grant them um, uh, that, that, that has some kind of legitimacy, which I suppose is, what you know, exactly how yeah. TV <laughs> news or something kind of, <laughs> that is the business model is, right, is, right. is you just sort of go and you, you, you make claims of injustice and suddenly you have a, a sort of discourse. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but, but, you know, the thing that's so, you know, almost prophetic about kind of Fraser's writing on this stuff is that is that it recognises this is exactly the way that this discourse is going to go. And the question that seems... Um, you know, that seems to emerge from, from it for me is, you know, what is the, what are the criteria by which you actually assess these, these claims? You, you talk about this in the piece, you know, I'm caricaturing it a bit, but there's a, there's a sort of attitude, you know, social media attitude, which is that kind of, that there is, a, you know, an intrinsic form of epistemic claim. Um, you know, there is a form of knowledge which is granted by the fact of oppression, which is ungainsayable, right? Like there's a sort of like automatic grasping of the truth, which is inaccessible to anyone outside that subject position. The problem here is, of course, that, like, there's, you, you then have a series of kind of overlapping and often like contesting claims, mm. which have to in some way be adjudicated between. Sure. Otherwise, I mean, the other, the other possibilities you produce, like an incredibly, enormously anxious subject, right? Like, let's mm. say you're a sincere person who wants to take claims of injustice seriously and you have like this kind of series of like absolute claims that are then kind of very difficult to media you, you know just produces a kind of almost 
impossible anxiety. Mm. So, mm. you know, the, the, the question then emerges, and I think this gets us on to the kind of, di- you know, the digital aspect of this, which is what a lot of your argument is about, is developing this, this kind of theory in the context of, you know, the digital revolution within politics, within culture, within society, um, it, it is, you know, how you, you know, what kind of criteria you use to adjudicate those, those questions. And of course, in the structure of social media and digital structure of politics, it seems to be very, very difficult to do so. Yeah. Well, I think there are various things to say about this. I mean, it's worth just pointing out. I mean, so Nancy Fraser's argument, um, which she makes that develops in sort of in dialogue with Honnett, is yes, that if we if we only focus on recognition and claims of misrecognition, then we will end end up in this kind of yeah, as I say, what she calls vulgar culturalism, and 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 in a way that 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 is sort of where a lot of what is denigrated as identity politics, it, when when identity politics is used in that kind of pejorative sense, it's the idea that um, injustice is wholly discursive and justice is also wholly discursive and that if things could simply if you could simply rearrange symbols and words and that kind of stuff then everything would be fine and that all you know when people come along and make claims that they're being sort of excluded or ignored or devalued and so on all they want is to have various words changed you know as if that's all it is and and that is what sort of the telegraph or douglas murray wants identity politics to be because they know that they, it, 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 they can make it look ridiculous fundamentally is that um and of course it also that form of vulgar culturalism works extremely well in the world of PR where you know this sort of you get these kind of you know advertising campaigns and so on which I mean PR and branding uh, is a sort of another kind of wing of postmodernism in which the world is um, the, the, the world is simply a kind of a, a set of symbols which are arranged in a particular order and that by rearranging them in different ways then uh, things bad things can become good or something like that um, I think what so what Fraser one of the things Fraser argues is that um, by thinking about redistribution of recognition as both parallel and interconnected, but not the same thing, then we can understand uh, systemic forms of misrecognition and why misrecognition sometimes attains a, a systemic form. And uh, I mean, I think if you wanted a, a kind of an example of this, you think of how this is kind of re- very relevant to, to the to the COVID pandemic. If you think of how care work is both um, devalued by the market in the sense that you've got a lot of people working uh, on precarious contracts, zero hours contracts, uh, on low paid, uh, and at the same time that uh, a disproportionate uh, uh, number of people working in the care sector um, are women and people of colour, you see that there is a uh, both uh, the use of uh, uh, the, the, the withholding of full cultural recognition of particular uh, identities, which works quite systemically and in partnership with the market devaluation of their labour. And this is a kind of you know central argument that someone like Fraser has made in other other contexts as well. Uh, in relation to the crisis of care is that effectively what you have is a sort of twin-pronged devaluation whereby both simultaneously withholding full cultural and political recognition of particular people, you are then able to employ them uh, at uh, either unpaid or in an underpaid fashion. So they become cheap in the market because they have become cheapened politically and, and culturally. And, and I mean, this is a sort of, you know, as I say, this is sort of central to how, how Fraser thinks about this kind of thing and, and has argued about it. And, and it also has, there are ways you can make similar arguments in, in relation to the environment and, 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 and questions of environmental justice at a global level. Um, I think as far as the, the, this question of the, you know, the, the, the digital is concerned, I mean, there's a lot more to say about this. And this is principally what my, my piece is about. I mean, what I, what I argue in the piece is that what occurs in platform, under platform capitalism, once we are conducting our civic social and economic lives on these grids of data collection um, and of um, where we are leaving constant data trails behind us is a switch from a politics of recognition, which is something that emerges uh, on the basis of commercial society in the 18th century, to a politics of reputation. Um, And uh, recognition is something that is... uh, uh, relational. It's something which one person can give to me or withhold from me or whatever it might be. Re- reputation is more triangular. Reputation is more what one encounters when Amazon says, oh, you know, people who like this also like that. And people like you also like this. Uh, and the, effectively, um, what uh, it becomes something that which certain, you know, when somebody pays attention to me, they are making some kind of investment in my reputation, or when they give me a like, they're making some kind of investment in my reputation. And the, what digital technology does is to gradually steadily build up this kind of bank of sort of credits or inputs or, or points or whatever you want to call it, likes, I suppose. Um, and that's what we are all constantly involved in. 
Right. I mean, I think there's, you know, the, there's a lot of stuff to kind of pull out here. And I think like, you know, I, in a sense, I'm pulled in two ways, like towards, you know, towards discussion of, of the kind of extractive aspect of this stuff, which I think is tremendously interesting because it makes us feel like the, the promise of the, the, these kind of unmediated discursive spaces, you know, something like Twitter, whatever, you know, actually there's something else, something sinister going on. That's, you know, a relatively common tech argument. Um, but I think to get there, we also need to talk about th this question of the public sphere, right? Uh, and, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about kind of what the institutions are that conduct recognition under a sort of rec recognition politics. And so maybe we should just say just a little about the kind of digital transformation of the public sphere. Because, you know, like it, it would be possible to say, oh, well, has, you know, you, you know, if you, if you were hostile to this argument, you could say, well, you know, social media, like, you know, it's it's still a minority pursuit. I mean, I'm not sure that's actually true anymore. You know, and, and the people on it are in a bubble, this is a very common argument. Um, and so, you know, I think, it, it's good to just lay out the, the extent to which we're talking about a kind of really substantive transformation in the way in which we talk about the way in which we as a society talk about our politics um, among ourselves and the way in which in fact you know politics uh, uh, you know and you know politics in the wider sense is in kind of value change um, you know is conducted you know via these means so so perhaps you can say just a little in, in terms of that digital transformation yeah in some ways you could say that at least the idea of the liberal public sphere, and this is something that is never fully realized, is uh, in practice deeply deficient and exclusionary and um, has uh, uh, is in some ways, you could say, a, a kind of a liberal utopia. Um, uh, the idea, as expressed in, say, Richard Sennett's The Fall of Public Man or in um, Jürgen Habermas's the structural transformation of the public sphere is that some point between the kind of mid 17th century and the late 19th century, there develops um, a way in which people encounter one another as strangers. This is thanks to the rise of commercial society, that what markets did with the rise of the, the coffee houses and the rise of the uh, various forms of financial institutions in places like the City of London from the over the course of the 17th century, is that what they did was they brought people together, not as on the basis of status or honour, or on the basis that they were friends or the basis of family, but on the basis of, 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 of being human beings in a shared uh, civil society. Again, all sorts of deficiencies and things wrong with that in terms of who those people actually were and what allowed them to actually enter those spaces. It was a small minority. I'm not uh, downplaying um, the, the history of this. I'm just saying what, what was the idea of it because this is something which I think is of interest to people like Habermas. Um, and in some ways, the idea of the critic as someone who emerges uh, over the same period is of someone who encounters the artwork uh, from the perspective of some sort of dispassionate judgment as if there is no actual kind of relationship here. The artwork is kind of disembedded from its context. The artwork is no longer something that exists because it's in a church or in a royal palace. It is simply an artwork to be judged as an artwork. In the same way that the bond trader might look at the piece of paper and decide whether they want to buy it or not, the critic looks at the artwork and decides whether it is you know, good or not. The, the most sophisticated and extensive theorization of this is Kant's critique of judgment in, in 1790, which is a, a sort of philosophical attempt to understand what, what is judgment when there is no grounds for judgment in a set? What is this kind of judging thing that we have inside of us when we are not able to rely on his, on context, on relationships, on uh, circumstances, on, on, on status, on a religion, you know, politics? And we're just judging, you know, do I like Picasso? Well, I have to sort of know how to judge sort of thing. And I think what platform capitalism does is it does great violence to that idea, an idea that I appreciate has never been uh, fully realized. And of course, when I walk into, you know, Tate Modern, I see a Picasso. <laughs> I'm not, it's not as if I've never seen it before, it's if I don't know who Picasso is. So in some ways, the idea is, is kind of, you know, uh, it's a kind of heuristic, but it's, um, but what platform capitalism does is that effectively, we never encounter each one another any longer without uh, status inequalities, without context, and without uh, relations that in some ways inform the forms of reactions and judgments that we have towards one another. Um, so Twitter being one obvious example, when two people have an exchange on Twitter, they bring with them, you know, different quantities of followers, they bring with them different archives of, of what they've said in the past, they bring with them, you know, different things in their, you know, obviously, biog, I guess you could say is, is, is sort of a minimal aspect of that. But um, but equally, uh, you know, the way you um, uh, interact with, I don't know, a, a restaurant via Deliveroo or, or whatever it might be, um, is brings with it an archive, a history, a context, 
what other people have said. Um, and that effectively, uh, th this is producing, at least in principle, um, a different logic for the public sphere in which everything becomes a kind of strategic move of one kind or another. So that, you know, you and I are both... Uh, Twitter users, you know, there is the sort of all the different ways in which the like button can be can, can be used to, to mean lots of different things. But ultimately, it might just be a sort of impulsive thing, but that, that it can even be a sort of strategic calculation of some kind. So that everything becomes a kind of a, a way of, of, of rearranging the pieces in a kind of complex diagram and all the pieces are connected in some way. So that idea uh, that someone like Habermas and, and Senate found so kind of it's sort of exciting and seductive that emerges in those sort of salons and coffee shops of the, of the 17th century is it, it, it's suspended in favour of something that is closer to being more like um, the logic of the financial market rather than the logic of, of, of these kind of spot markets, where um, financial markets, as Keynes argued, um, are governed by what he called animal spirits. And the reason they're governed by animal spirits is that one of the reasons one buys a, a given stock in the financial markets is because lots of other people are buying it. Um, you, you know, one of the reasons it's possible to get huge loans to buy houses is because, you know, in this sort of lunatic economy that we live in, there is this sort of perception that the price of houses is going to carry on rising. So that there is a, a sort of other people like this, therefore it's okay to like it kind of element to it. And this creates kind of bubbles, it creates herd behavior, it creates these kind of surges of sentiment, both up and down. Uh, but there is nevertheless a social logic to how value is attributed to things, which uh, I think is uh, quite represents a fundamental departure from that at least um, uh, imagined or uh, desired uh, or in principle logic uh, of that, you know, someone like Kant was interested when he was writing about judgment. For me, the question is, if we think specifically in terms of politics, the way in which politics is now shaped by and conducted through these platforms. And, you know, it seems to me to pick up that question of autonomous critical judgment, actually. You reference a, a really good piece, I think, by, by Christian Lawrenson, who, who kind of, you know, is examining the way in which, you know, as a, you know, as someone who writes about... Like this or die, I think it's called. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Harper's. But this is, but this is a, you know, but this is the... The, the kind of task of the the critic, um, it, you know, is transformed in in this period. In, in in that, like, there's a risk for doing, you know, bad things. You know, the, the sense of having a kind of autonomous um, aesthetic uh, series of criteria outside of the question of reputation. This is, I think, anyone who 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 writes about politics has to make this kind of judgment about not just in terms of kind of future employability, but like you know, where, you know, where the limit points are in terms of what you can raise. And it, it seems obvious to me that this has, you know, there's a disciplinary function, you know, to social media, but also to, you know, to, to the wider kind of economy of, of, of writing of, of kind of political thought, you know, which operates not in the same sense that, say, historical membership of a political party might operate in that, like, you know, let's say you were a member of the Labour Party, you can only go and do your job as a member of the Labour Party and go and do, you know, go and knock on doors or whatever um but now there is you know that you know there is a, a a series of you know and it runs in both ways right i mean i think this is really visible over the past few years where you had huge influx of people into a political party who were many of them were very very online there is no kind of tool for discursive management um you know you have this kind of political entity that that then is also a kind of manager of opinion um you know it, it, you start to see actually the ways in which this operates i think you know and and this particularly becomes a problem for kind of constructive critical engagement, I think, um, where all forms of criticism, precisely because they operate in this reputational economy, yeah. are seen as, seen as forms of harm, yeah. um, are seen, seen as forms of like, risk and damage. And I don't know what that does to politics, but it certainly doesn't look good to me. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's harm, but it's also, I mean, I think, the, again, there's the sort of analogy to finance here. I mean, um, in the sense that, um, you know, you talk about, social media having this sort of disciplining effect on politics. I mean, in a way, that's what finance was um, celebrated for doing to corporations in the 1980s with the rise of shareholder value was that you just like, well, you know, you better, uh, you, you know, you better lay off a few staff, otherwise your share price is going to fall. You better, you know, um, invest in some sort of fiber optic cables. Otherwise, you're, you know, you know that'll pump up your share price, um, pay your managers more and so on. Um, so there's that. And I, I think that in a way, it's the idea is that um, effectively, you know, 
I, I did a piece actually in the in the LRB, uh, which they gave uh, a typically LRB title where they pluck a sort of strange sentence out of the whole thing. I said, now you're on the editorial board. I careful what I say. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, the um, it was called it was called um, uh, Who am I prepared to kill? It came out um, last year, but. Um, it was about the sort of binary logic of both social media and also of, of Carl Schmitt's politics and sort of <laughs> looking at how uh, Schmitt was interested in uh, a form of democracy which basically involved yay or nay, that he, he thought that the people had a, had a role to play, uh, but it consisted in sort of putting your thumb up or your thumb down. And of course, we now live in a, a, a culture of putting your thumb up or your thumb down, which is the culture of social media and the culture of, of real-time feedback, because real-time feedback, unlike critical judgment, critical judgment is something that, that you couldn't you can't do in real time. I mean, you need to spend some time reflecting, you need time to write, you need to sort of, you know, to, to, to think and to, to have this moment to judge. Real-time feedback is a sort of like, yeah, this that's good, no, that's less good, that's a bit more good. You know, it's like the worm going up and down during mm-hmm. during presidential debates, which is the example I, I use in that in that piece. Um, and I think that, yes, critique or, 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 or a negative criticism um, becomes like a cell, effectively, in finance. It's like, a, no, I'm, I, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a cell, it's a thumbs down. Uh, and that's the problem is you're in a kind of binary thing of like, do I want to like this? Do I want to unlike it? Do I want to follow this? Do I want to unfollow this? Do I want to buy it? Do I want to sell it? Uh, is it a yay or is it a no? And that's partly because of the the, 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 the the temporal structure of the digital public sphere, in which is one of sometimes called the experience economy, where effectively, you know, we, 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 we remain immersed in these kind of environments um, where um, the we are expected to feed back while something is still underway. Um, and, you know, it's like, and, and I suffer from this as anyone else. I'm not sort of trying to be a, a snob about this, you know, sort of watching TV while also tweeting about it at the same time mm-hmm. um, and not being able to kind of, you know, whereas only 15 years ago, I, I might have uh, watched TV and then written a blog about it the next day. And that would have been much closer to the idea of critical judgment than the idea of, of, of feedback. Uh, it might have been a crap blog, but, um, you know, nevertheless, it, it obeys a different kind of temporal rhythm. Um, so I, I think that's the that's part of the difficulty that we that we face um, is that, I mean, as I argue in, in the New Left Review piece that, that um, we're talking about, um, is that uh, reaction becomes the sort of currency of asset investment or divestment. And actually, we haven't really kind of quite gone to this, but I think that you know, in some ways, the, 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 the politics of divestment in all of this is much more significant mm-hmm. in lots of ways. There might be a disciplining effect in saying in doing what's likable, which is what the, 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 the Christian Lawrence piece is about, like this or die. Uh, and it might be that people have to sort of, you know, feel they have to say the right things and, you know, you know, behave in the right way and create the right kind of content in order to carry on getting the, the the likes. But of course, we also live in a in a society, and this, of course, again, the idea of cancel culture. Everyone, everyone, you know, it's a, it's a ridiculous term, and a lot of people on the left insist that it simply doesn't exist at all. But we all know that there is the, 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 the there are weapons around uh, via which which can be used for good purposes. Uh, I'm not saying that they should never be used, but we cannot, we shouldn't try and deny that the possibilities for reputational attack are out there uh, and that they get used for multiple purposes. And, and there's another article by Emily Rosamond uh, that I, I cite in the in the piece about reputation warfare as an attempt to try and understand, you know, how the kind of um, some of the sort of Trump machine worked in, and, and meme warfare worked over the course of the 2016 election. And so I, I think we have to recognise that whether you want to call it Reputation warfare, as she does, or or what you want to call it, that there is a that, that, that this, this different digital public sphere has not only had disciplining effects in terms of uh, create towards likable behaviour, positive behaviour, but it also um, has a sort of uh, some 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 punishments that can be meted out for, for for the opposite. Right, and there's always. I mean, you know, I try to tweet less, and I should tweet less than I actually do. I try, but I try to tweet even less than I even less than I actually do. Um, uh, but I find myself going to, you know, typing out an opinion and going, nope, can't say that. Um, and, and, you know, and in some ways, that's fine. You know, that's the effect of a public sphere where you go like, actually, you know, I want to maintain, not, not that I want to ma- maintain a kind of false presence, but like, you know, I, if I want to make this argument, then this probably isn't the place for it. That, that actually it's an argument that has to be made in a much more complex way um not that that present prevents kind of complex arguments being reduced to kind of you know ways to be beaten on on the internet um you know i guess like the 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 question here is that is is an economic one right that that actually this this isn't just a question of pure you know pure opinions conducted in a a discursive 
space, but there are lots of people who rely on their reputation literally to pay the rent. Um, and, and that seems to me to, to change something, right? That, that these, these economies of reputation, you know, as you, as you put it, um, are, are not just kind of analogical economies. They are actual economies. They are economies that involve like actual money. And I suppose the other side of that is like, and I, I wonder if there's a way of connecting the two, is on the one hand, you have these people who are kind of within the sort of, you know, digital chaos, as it were, the, the sort of, you know, anarchy of the, the digital public sphere. And then behind it, there are these kind of platform structures, which by every action, every buy or sell, as it were, um, are extracting something from it and profiting mm. from it. Um, yeah. So is there a connection between those two? Well, I, it's interesting. I mean, I think um, obviously the, the 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 simple business model of all platforms is to just get us to use the platforms as much as possible for as many possible things as possible. And um, uh, you know, obviously that's why, in some ways, the, the, sort of Amazon uh, Alexa is the kind of uh, uh, sort of ultimate device. Well, I'm sure it's not the ultimate one. They've probably got something more up their sleeve. I think um, <laughs> moving into into prescription medicine apparently is the, one of the next things they're going to do. So they'll get to know all about our ailments and our bodies in ways that, that Alexa Alexa doesn't. Um, but um, uh so but yeah they want us to do whatever they can to keep us on on the platform and, and in a sense you know one of the things I, I argue in the article is that um on some level because what you can get on a platform is you can get reaction and, and, and you know it's not difficult to get a reaction i mean um you can get reputation much harder to get something to be built up over time a bit like an asset value um and you know the way to build reputation is to is to sort of sustain a stream of incoming uh, positive reactions if you like so if you think of if you think of it as sort of like a form of capital that you kind of build up and you make these payments into through through you you sort of accumulate um positive reactions and you build up towards the reputation or you can build up a reputation through lots of negative re- inputs as well i mean it can they can work sort of together um as trolls you know tend to do um but um ultimately what you will not get and this is partly because of the 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 the, the fact that the digital economy is not premised on liberal concepts of human humanity or subjectivity, it is it is that effectively the way Silicon Valley understands human beings is as uh, black boxes which generate certain behaviors, certain reactions, certain feedback the whole time. That there is not a kind of a this this kind of eighteenth century um, romantic Rousseauian idea of what a self is that can be sort of recognized and seen and provided with the recognition that it kind of yearns for as in the work of Honnet and Taylor and so on uh, and that fundamentally the more time we spend on these on these platforms we might get lots of reaction we might even get lots of reputation but we will not get recognition because via those kind of media recognition is not something that you're you're ever going to quite attain and so there's a kind of sense of a feeling of generalized misrecognition that extends uh, at all different points I mean you know there's a you could say that you know Trump's um, one of Trump's favourite words. I wrote another article about this actually in a in a in a journal um, called the European Journal of Social Theory. But I started from the premise that you know, one of Trump's favourite words on Twitter was always unfair. Uh, so Trump had Trump. No one had a sense of injustice and unfairness and misrecognition like Donald Trump, the most powerful man in the world felt misrecognized and felt unfairly treated the entire time. And that is the very basis of his appeal. And it remains the, the, the way in which he's managing to completely sort of uh, turn the Republican Party into a, into a, into a fundamentally a conspiracist, a conspiracy theory uh, party. But I think that that's the, that, that's the, the, the problem with, with the digital public sphere is, is that, you know, we are obviously drawn into it in order to generate more data, um, feelings of, of 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 misrecognition, I think, are pervasive in, in in many ways. And I think recognizing that, at least accepting that, and accepting that we can use it for other purposes other than sort of the quest for for the forms of recognition that you know if Charles Taylor's right, all human beings need, uh, is is perhaps a, at least a, a starting point, and to recognize that it's flawed and that it's. Um, uh, yeah, you know, it's one of the, the really strongest insights I got from from the piece was one of the ways of thinking about these social constituencies that people have been perplexed by over the past few years saying, well, look, you know, these people are, you know, so what you, you used to get the kind of left behind narrative, right? That these are the people, you know, really bottom of the pile. They have nothing at all. You know, that these are people been kind of, you know, stuck. And then it seems, you know, sociologically, then it seems like, oh, well, actually, this is um, the Trump constituency in particular actually isn't the bottom of the pile, but is somewhere like a little further up um, and some kind of very, you know, you know, very wealthy constituency as well. And then you think, okay, well, actually, I can see here 
recognition and misrecognition in particular does seem to me to be a much stronger way of approaching this because it takes us back to that question of sort of the subjective dimension where you can say, oh, well, actually, you might be kind of economically, you know, not prosperous, but all right. But if if then you see your public sphere is engaged with these questions of, of, of recognition and particularly, you know, the legacy of successful struggles for recognition, then you can see how resentment um, however illegitimate, however uh, you know, you know, is built, and then then you kind of plug into this machine for generating <laughs> this recognition that is social media. Well, then then I, this is why everyone's shouting at each other on the internet all the time. This is why now you can see how that you can take that in an extremely reactionary direction, but then you can see also how you take this in a direction where you go, ah, okay, well, this is actually is a fundamental socio political psychological need that needs to be accounted for in our politics. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think that how the media can can deal with that is another question. I mean, obviously, it puts the BBC in a very difficult position because the BBC is now kind of constantly torn over um, whether it sort of you know if it if it sort of uh, if it sticks to the cultural tastes and 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 sort of. Um, I suppose you know if it reflects too much on the on the cultural identities of those who fundamentally do do dominate its staff. I mean, if you think about where they live and where they went to university and that sort of stuff, uh, then it you know now lives in this kind of state of constant anxiety because it's got these kind of you know these these forces uh, leveled against it in the form of the right wing press, uh, the Johnson administration itself. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of shouldn't give it two mentions really, but GB News, you know. To, <laughs> um, but um, so they you know they are now in this situation of sort of. Struggling to kind of try and uh, start to to, to to sort of rebalance the kind of forms of, of, of recognition that they give, and this is this sort of nonsense about flags and this sort of thing. Um, I think that I think that's right, and I think that's the sort of obviously a, a more sort of hopeful democratic politics has to sort of take this stuff seriously. I think that I just want to go back briefly to, to something you were saying about the kind of interplay of the economic and the and, and the cultural, which again is something which comes out of Fraser's work quite strongly. Um, and you were saying about how people who potentially, you know, can, can can lose the ability to pay their rent if their reputation was to get damaged too much. And actually, incidentally, I mean, it's not just in the space of, you know, oh, you say something really bad on, on social media, you might lose your job. Which I mean, I'm sure it does happen, but I think that's the sort of dominant problem. I mean, we sort of live in a society, you know, the the the, the precedent would be something more like um, sort of credit rating, you know, that that can really screw with people. And the, the limits of what data gets taken into account by credit rating, this is a, a kind of platform logic writ large, is that behavior in one part of my life can affect how I'm judged in another part of my life in ways that I can't even assess a lot of the time. I don't even know who the assessors are. And that's how, how credit rating works. I think that what, I think the thing to watch, and this is something which I didn't get into the article, and I, and I wish I had, because I think the interesting thing that comes out of this for me, actually, having sort of written it a while ago, and, and think, is the rise of, I mentioned divestment, um, but also these what are called defund movements, broadly speaking. So you have defund the police, but you also have on the right, you have defund uh, the, the BBC. Um, and I think that this is the thing which is going to be interesting in the future, in a way, is how effectively, I mean, if 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 the struggle for recognition, as, as Honnett and Taylor talk about it, was layered upon market society of a sort of the formal liberal egalitarianism of market society. When I say formal, I mean like not achieved or substantive. I mean it's sort of a priori, um, and that that is the sort of the, the the sort of ground on which the struggle for recognition plays out. The struggle of reputation plays out on the grounds of the financial economy, the, the, of the, the search for financial appreciation of assets, but also of human capital, of, of, of one's own kind of employability and one's status in the market. Um, and the question is, how do these two things come together? How does, how does the, the, the financial economy, the, the, the economy of, of, of where financial investments are made, interplay with this kind of reputation economy of um, various um, sort of movements that occur on, on social media platforms and elsewhere. Um, because I think that in a way, what you can see with both defund the police and defund the BBC in different ways is a quite strategic and quite deliberate attempt to, to actively withdraw cultural investment from an institution, when I say or political investment, when I say investment, what I mean is to that the forms of belief, the forms of credit that we 
bestow upon the police or the BBC are actively and strategically weakened and reduced such that this institution, which once people might have trusted and thought of as being uh, credible in a, in a political and social way, starts to become less credible, starts to lose its, its authority in society. And that then becomes the basis for withdrawing the financial investments. Uh, and that, I think, is the thing which is going to be interesting to watch in terms of, I mean, this was already seen with things like, you know, the the attempts to attack um, uh, art galleries for taking money from oil companies. This would be another example where effectively the sort of the alliance of, of the financial and the cultural gets sort of worked on and resisted simultaneously. Now, the problem with that is, of course, you also get these kind of huge sort of overreactions that can happen by um, sort of, you know, supermarket chains and that kind of thing, where they're worried that their whole brand can be sort of, you know, can, can, can be destroyed uh, within a few tweets. Uh, and that's where sort of a lot of kind of, you know, woke capitalism and identity politics gets its kind of uh, negative reputation um, because you see, you know, the brand managers of Tesco's or this sort of thing engaging in some rather sort of silly kind of online kind of, uh, um, you know, or saying some rather silly things online because they're absolutely fundamentally what they're terrified of is a, a, a cultural divestment that leads to a to a, to a market divestment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the sort of political moment that we're that we're in now. Right, and I mean the the you know the, this kind of politics is is so available to that because you know in or at least in one transformation of it, it's so concerned with like the lexical, the mm. symbolic, the representational that it's it, you know that these gestures, these kind of digital gestures, are so easily available and cost you know <laughs> actually mm. cost almost nothing. Yeah, um, which leads us you know like to that question, you know, which I think connects to some of the stuff you're saying here, which is just you know that that. You know, I'm left when I think about this, you know, about the kind of, you know, the ambiguous role of authenticity in this stuff, right? Mm. Like, um, you know, that, that there is a desire in the reputation economy for a kind of authenticity, right? So you see, like, the, the you know, the most successful, um, you know, online entrepreneurs of the self, as it were, a horrible phrase that is, mm. but, uh, you know, their products are not the slickest. They're not like, mm. they they have these endless streams of, you know, hours upon hours of, you know, you know, just talking often not terribly coherently. But there's something about a kind of uh, a desire for, for, for the unmediated and the authentic. While at the same time, there's a huge literature on the kind of false authenticity of the internet. Mm. So, so there's, you know, this question about, you know, the economy of reputation, um, that, that, you know, the, the great move, the constitutive move of cancel culture is to reveal an insincerity. So like, this is the very popular thing on Twitter right now is to dig through someone's you know, personal archive, which is available to everyone, um, and, and dig up something from a decade ago and, and retweet it with like, you know, this you. Uh, like here, here's something yeah. you said in the past that reveals that what you say now is insincere. And, you know, like it, it, it can often be very funny, it also seems to me very dangerous. It also seems to me, you mentioned the Richard Sennett book, The Fall of Public mm. Man earlier, and there's a lot in that book, which is a very weird book, by the way. Yeah, but there's a lot in mm. that book about the, the barrier between mm. um, you know, public and private, the, the barrier that there is a sort of sense of kind of taking you know, the autonomous argument seriously as an autonomous argument rather than a kind of bearer of personal uh, mm. reputation you know maybe i'm just you know nostalgic for a time mm. that i never lived through and, <laughs> and didn't exist anyway <laughs> and, 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 and this kind of, kind of largely fictional yeah. anyway but like but you can see yeah. that you can see how that desire for it would arise sure right? yeah no of course and i think i mean i think it's interesting you talk about this sort of this you stuff i mean it's interesting because i was saying how what the the digital economy differs from the idea of market society the the, the, the enlightenment idea of, of, of market society in that people Never, no longer encounter each other uh, as sort of isolated individuals. They always encounter one another within particular contexts of who else they know and who else is like what they've done and so on. But then there's a kind of that flips into a sort of, I suppose, a kind of mischief, sometimes a form of sadism, let's be honest, um, sometimes a form of, of genuine uh, illumination of hypocrisy, which can be very useful, I think, sometimes. But it can, you know, the problem is knowing wh- which bits are sadistic and which bits are actually genuinely sort of enlightening uh, of, of of others' hypocrisy. And sometimes they're both. I mean, you know, sometimes the people who are who are best at illuminating the hypocrisy of the powerful will probably do it for reasons of of, of sort of personal gratification as much as for matters of, of political progress. And I mean, no doubt there are lots of superb investigative journalists out there over time who probably just have a deep loathing of of the powerful, and they might be some of 
the most important diggers that uh, that have ever undermined uh, power in certain points. So I think we need to recognize that we can't always isolate the best intentions. It's not as there will be bad intentions, which lead to kind of good political outcomes and, and, and so on. But I think that what, what that sort of this you sort of culture does is on the basis of you know, people in this particular bubble kind of know who one another is or know where they're speaking from and so on, is to play with what the internet can do like nothing else, which is uh, which is to destroy context. So that effectively you just sort of, it's a, it's a kind of context um, manipulation machine where you can cut out, you know, a sentence or you can cut out, you can even cut out a clause in a sentence or you can simply find a particular, you know, frame from a particular video and you can dump it into a different context uh, and you can you can do harm. It seems to only, it's rare that it's ever done to do to do whatever you know to, to to actually endorse someone it's normally done in order to to bring someone down so i think that um you know these these things um you know absolutely that's you know you talk about the authenticity issue i think there are two sources of authenticity online which are available neither of which ever quite sort of delivers what the level of authenticity that we actually kind of want, as someone like Charles Taylor would would argue. One is the archive, um, and having an archive that backs up who one claims to be uh, and doesn't have any sort of skeletons in it um, is a sort of is a source of political authenticity. Um, I mean, I've written before about the, the the importance of you know. I'm not saying I, I don't want to exaggerate it, but for example, you know, the the image of of Bernie Sanders um, uh, in a clash with the police during the civil rights movement, the image of Jeremy Corbyn being dragged away from an apartheid uh, protest in London. These things are real. No one's claiming they're not real. Uh, they exist out there. Not, they they precede the the, the 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 social media economy and so on. But these are examples of how the inner um, thought, the inner feelings, the inner intentions of those figures seems to correlate to what they have in their archives. Uh, and it's that that's the problem of authenticity, as I say, back to say Rousseau and the, 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 the romanticism, that is like, well, what does this person really feel deep down? The second for, source of authenticity is the, the idea of the kind of accidental body language, if you like, that what we betray about ourselves in the moment, you know, you see this online as well. It's like, you know, oh, look at how someone's currently looking at someone else. Look at the glare they're giving. This sort of idea that sort of our bodies and our faces and our our body language betrays what's really going on. Now, this is also a sort of the the, the, the epistemology of surveillance capital, incidentally, because that's why, you know, Alexa doesn't just listen to what we say, it also listens to our tone of voice. It's why, you know, you have this sort of um, neuromarketing industry, which tries to kind of pick up from, from, from what people really want on the basis of their brainwaves and so on. But politically, it has quite major implications because uh, it is possible to practice a, a persona. It is possible to practice real-time response. And that is Boris Johnson. The, the, Boris Johnson has been practicing Boris Johnson for 40 years. Um, and the fact that he seems unpolished and the fact that he seems natural and that he just, oh, he's just Boris being Boris is not an accident. He has been, we, we, you know, this has been, there was that very good piece about Oxford by Simon Cooper in the FT a couple of years ago about how Boris sort of kept studiously practiced this sort of hair and this, this sort of strange kind of cartoon character. Um, and that he really is the sort of, a uh, perfect politician for the for the, for this digital age because he generates these kind of content and these clips and these sort of things that are sort of mesmerizing and hold your attention and they don't really mean anything but you you kind of want to look at you'd rather look at them than look at Keir Starmer you know there's a sort of that's the thing is that they have a sort of they are magnets for attention and for reaction both positive and negative and in that sense kind of build up the the sort of asset reputational value you might say Jeremy Corbyn, you know, been on a hell of a lot of platforms in his life as well. He has like a lot of what lot, what was seen about Jeremy Corbyn. He had practiced not in the cynical way necessarily that Boris had, but he'd also had his own sort of you know prehistory that allowed him to to attain a kind of authenticity. So I think those are the things that that, that are in play in this kind of reputation economy. Um, but I think the question of doubt and the question of, of of fake never entirely goes away. And that you know this this term fake that has become so sort of dominant in so coinciding with this kind of um, desperation for, for for the authentic um, is I think telling of how we live with technologies and we live with a, a, a sort of set of media that that cannot deliver on their promises. There are there would be fantasies of just kind of you know circumnavigating this politics right that that you you know I mean, the classic fantasy the classic left wing fantasy is that that you can if effectively forego politics altogether by having an extremely strong labor movement that then generates a politics of its own um you know via organization um let's assume that, that that's probably not true 
um, if only because it's never actually worked. And and the other would be a kind of fantasy of exit. I've read recently quite a lot of there are genre almost of these kind of tech writers writing about technology and social media in particular, and it's often very melancholic. It kind of explores the desire you know, the, the, the way in which it kind of structures and patterns the brain and desires and, you know, it's simply just almost everything about about kind of one's individual dispositions and is often kind of laced with these kind of fantasies of just exiting the technological entirely, right? And then always, always concludes with, oh, but, you know, I can't actually tear myself away. I don't think that's actually necessarily true. I think you can probably do it if you want to. There's just many, many disadvantages. Um and I think certainly on a general social and political level, it's probably impossible to exit entirely. But so then that leaves us with the question of you know, of recognizing that we can't escape this politics entirely. And your 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 piece kind of ends with just a suggestion that there might be ways that we have to kind of think about going through it. So you mentioned kind of Black Lives Matter and its use of reputational capital, um, you know, the prospect perhaps of sort of sabotage within the logic of reputation. Uh, and you mentioned, of course, um, the, the very brilliant Eric Olin Wright, who, whose last book kind of just starts to, to, to ask questions about um, the way in which you, you, you might rethink the platforms behind all this. So let's try and end on a hopeful note. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... It is difficult to exit because I think in some ways this has become a sort of dominant logic, which um, which people who may not even be that aware of it are, are still kind of governed by it in some ways. I mean, the platform is, I suppose, a bit like one's parents in psychoanalysis in that you, you're you never going to kind of <laughs> undo it or overthrow it, but understanding the way in which it sort of screwed you up in certain ways might be might have its own kind of liberation and might have its own sort of you know truth-telling um element <laughs> um in the sense that it is better to know when one is being kind of played and when one has become an addict or when one has become a sort of constrained by something i mean you know in in, in richard seymour's um, wonderful book the twittering machine um you know, each chapter is given a name such as we are all addicts, we are all celebrities, we are all this, we are all that. And I think that in some ways a sort of, you know, adopting a, the humility uh, that we are in this, we uh, don't always like it, we sometimes we do like it, uh, sometimes we don't like the way that we like it, um, And the, but, it, but it, is, it is our reality. And trying to understand its, uh, its politics and its economics, I think, is, is at least a sort of, on, on a personal level, has a kind of, uh, a sort of... Uh, uh, an enlightening aspect to it. On, on a collective level, um, you know, I, I write in the in the piece about whether to adopt a wholly externalist critique of, of, of platform capitalism, which is purely focused on the sort of you know a, a purely sort of materialist critique. And there have been some good uh, there, there there have been sort of worker resistances to the gig economy and those areas of platform capitalism and attempts to uh, organise workers. Um, within Amazon and these sorts of things. And there is a kind of more sort of traditional material critique of a certain style of capitalism, uh, an attempt to try and sort of either govern it in a different way. So you have, you know, platform cooperatives and collectives, and you have these um, delivery cyclist uh, collectives, which effectively, or, and also sort of alternatives to Uber based around cooperative principles. So there is possible, that's the, the Olin Wright element, which is to uh, imagine how these same technologies and these same affordances could be collectively owned and governed in ways that is aims towards the, the common good and is governed um, for uh, for the collective. And Eric Allen Ryan, certainly, I mean, he uses Wikipedia in his book um, "Envisioning Real Utopias." One of his one of his real utopias is Wikipedia, which um, you know there are critics of, of Wikipedia who would uh, on the left who would disagree with that. But and also open source, obviously, is the other example that has been you know for, for a long time and long precedes um, platforms or anything like that. Um, then I talk about this kind of internalist critique, which is more to stay with the um, the recognition debates, to stay with the fact that actually people, ex how people express their injustices, how people express the injuries that have befallen them actually matters, needs to be listened to, and that actually giving them voice is uh, part of how the redress happens, that it's not simply enough to uh, sort of assume one knows what is good for them, which of course is a sort of a sort of vulgar Marxism doesn't require that in any way. Now, obviously, the risk then is that you know, do you throw yourself into the culture war? Well, I think we 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 probably think you know, we probably know that we don't want to throw ourselves into a culture war that has become so much of a sort of media oriented kind of spectacle on behalf of the, the Conservative Party and its its newspapers. Um, so then the question is, what what other forms of kind of cultural activism 
do we want to engage in? And you can use the, the sort of logic of, of, of devalue and defund uh, against the innocent, or you can use it against the guilty. And and and, and this is a matter of political judgment. There's no there's no rule book. Um, these weapons are dangerous, um, and they require responsibility, and uh, they can be used for fun and for uh, sadistic thrills, uh, or they can be used for something more serious with potentially more benefits. It's very, very difficult to always completely separate those two things. And I get drawn into some of, you know, watching, you know, people have, having something sort of dug up and, and, and used against them when actually the seri- the real consequences are not that that great. Um, I think that, you know, we it's an attempt, to, we have to try and think seriously about politics. I'm not, I, I don't claim to be someone who's particularly good at that sort of thing, but I, I don't think that there's any ducking that. I think that's a perfect place for us to leave it. <laughs> well, thank you. That's been um, actually an incredible conversation. Great. Thank you. It's really good to be here. And that's it for this week. My thanks as ever to Will Davies, with whom you can find a good number of fascinating discussions in our archive. And you can check out that article at the New Left Review. Now, stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM as I bid you farewell to go subsume myself in the mire of recognition and reputation that is our mutual digital inferno. Notice me, senpai, as the kids say, or I believe they do anyway. This has been indisputably Navara FM. I have been James Butler and I will see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.